Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is Mark and Sarah. Talk about songs. songs. Well, hello there, everyone, and welcome to Mastus Single Number 13. I am your host, Mark Blankenship, and not with me, as always, is my co-host, Sarah D. Bunting. On this single, I will be speaking to you alone because, quite frankly, Sarah does not have strong feelings about the songs we're going to discuss today, much like I did not have strong feelings about the Eagles hits that she ranked a few months ago. But my feelings for the Whitney Houston songs on the Bodyguard soundtrack are in fact so strong that I could not deny myself the chance to share them with you. I am also happy to say that as I am ranking Whitney's songs from the Bodyguard, I will also be tallying in uh, rankings from our Patreon patrons who also really do seem to get excited about these tunes and their rankings will join mine and we will find the total points together that they receive. Now, if you have not heard a Mastis ranking before, here's how it works. For each song, I have a total of one to six points to award. The song that I think is the best will receive six points. The song that I think is the least successful will receive one point. Same deal for the the pain, uh, for the patrons combined votes and then we will add those points up together to see which song is the ultimate winner for us from this album and before we get started i also have to thank our listener dean a who had the idea to talk about one of the songs on this album and we'll get to that in a second but it was such a good idea i thought that we just should expand it to a discussion of the entire whitney side of the bodyguard soundtrack you know i keep saying the whitney side the whitney songs For those who don't remember or who maybe never knew, the Bodyguard soundtrack was, of course, a monster hit in the early 90s, 92, 93, 94, really, like through that whole period. And it was a monster hit because Whitney Houston recorded six songs for the soundtrack. And she, of course, starred in the movie with Kevin Costner. She plays a performer who is stalked by a crazy person who ends up being her sister, spoiler, but almost 30 years later, so whatever. And Kevin Costner is the bodyguard who falls in love with her. And there was the whole, there's so many pop culture references about this movie and soundtrack that, but one of them is, uh, the first rule is never fall in love. That's supposed to be the bodyguard's first rule, but Kevin Costner won't listen and they fall in love. And actually at the time it was kind of a big deal because this was a really successful romantic drama that featured a, an interracial relationship. And honestly, even still today, you don't see that very often. And it was never remarked upon. It was just how it was. And of course, this movie wouldn't have been as big of a hit. I don't think if it were not for the soundtrack, And it certainly wouldn't have gone on to become a successful musical in London's West End, where a woman named Heather Headley, who is a Tony winner, really had a great success in creating the Whitney Houston role on the West End stage. That musical has never come to Broadway, which surprises me, quite frankly, as someone who works in the Broadway industry, but never say never. Anyway... The real reason, though, that anyone remembers The Bodyguard now, obviously, is because of the soundtrack. And we will not be discussing the non-Whitney songs in this ranking episode. However, if you would like to hear me talk about them, why just head on over to our Patreon page? Because a special episode that's only for the patrons will feature me discussing the rest of this soundtrack. Because, y'all, oh my god, (laughs) the non-Whitney songs on The Bodyguard soundtrack are 
really illustrative about what pop music was like then. All I'm going to say is saxophone, uh, but we'll get to that over on the Patreon page. And of course, you can join us over there at patreon.com slash mastess. But now let's get started. I have pulled clips for three of the songs from the Bodyguard soundtrack, but one of them is not from I Will Always Love You, which is the first song, because honestly, you guys, if you are listening to me talk right now and you cannot immediately call to mind the sound of Whitney Houston's performance of I Will Always Love You, I think you may have accidentally come to the wrong podcast. Like, we're happy to have you, but I wonder where you thought you were going to be. Anyway, if you do need a refresher, go, go get it on your own. I'll take a pause. Boop. I hope you use that time to pause your recording and go check out Whitney's version. Um, it is naturally almost impossible to overstate the success, the impact of Whitney Houston's recording of I Will Always Love You. I mean, y'all, does anyone even know that it was a Dolly Parton song first? I, yes, obviously people do. But Dolly Parton had a number one country hit with this song multiple times, interestingly enough. There were three... There are two different versions of this song that for Dolly Parton reached number one on the country chart. One from the original album, one a re-recorded version that she sang for the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And then later she released a duet version that was also a top 20 hit uh, in the wake of Whitney's success. And one of the famous things about this song is that Whitney Houston had the chance to, I mean, I mean, Dolly Parton, sorry, had the chance to have it recorded by Elvis Presley. But Elvis Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, said that he would only let Elvis record the song if Dolly Parton gave up her publishing rights for the song. And Dolly Parton said no. She knew that her art was worth more if it belonged to her. And even if Elvis was going to bless her with a recording, she wasn't going to let the song go. And could that have been a smarter decision? No, it could not. Because obviously Whitney Houston's version was number one all over the world forever and made Dolly Parton a truckload of money she has famously said that she doesn't even mind if people mistake the song as being a whitney houston original she has said they can forget that i sang it just send me my cash and she's also said like i used the money from that song to buy a truckload of wigs and whatever dolly parton is a living angel as you know i mean that's if you're listening to this podcast and you don't already know that dolly parton is an angel on this earth i'm going to take another pause and let you just go ahead and feel her wings brushing against your face Boop. Okay. Okay. So, but th- but let's now try to, if we can, get back away from the legend of Whitney's song, which again at the time was the longest running number one hit in history, fourteen weeks, late ninety two into ninety three. But let's get back to what made that song such a huge hit, and obviously it's the vocal. I would say. I mean, yes, the song itself is gorgeous, gorgeously written. Uh, David Foster, who is the king of adult contemporary music from this period. Uh, was the producer on this song, and he's never met a soaring schmaltzy string or meaningful sax solo that he doesn't like. Uh, But none of that would have mattered if it weren't for Whitney Houston's incredible vocal and that sound of her just braying, and I, I, like, that's one of the key sounds of popular music, I feel. Like, at the very end when she, um, when the, the music drops out for a second and then that drum beat hits, and then she comes back and she takes it up. And I mean, that's it's still thrilling to hear to this day. And I think that now that we've had enough distance from the song that we don't hear it all the time, 
I actually feel like it's easier to be reconnected to what made that song such a massive success in the first place. It's a thrilling, over-the-top, shameless ballad. Yes, shameless, but sometimes that's all we want, right? Like, I love the theatrics of this song. I love the soaring quality of her voice. I love, I can remember so clearly hearing it for the first time, and for the first several times that I heard it, thinking, I have never heard singing like this in my life. There was the feeling that you were discovering something, right? Like, oh my god, the human voice can do this? Why, it's so powerful. And it's not like we hadn't heard belting before, but there was just something about the relentlessness of Whitney Houston's belting in this, that was, and the way that she kept taking it up and stretching it out, and I just remember feeling like no one has ever sung this well ever. And I feel like a lot of people had that feeling. Like there's just something so raw and elemental and powerful about this performance. And it's incredible to listen to even still. And uh, it's also interesting if you think about the fact that this song starts with a very long acapella section. I mean, the song's build to its massive orgiastic climax of sound is really impressive because is really great i should say really dynamic because it starts so quietly and it's really rare for a hit song to have such a long acapella beginning and i remember reading at the time that they almost cut that part from the song and i'm really glad that they didn't it's like this whole song is filled with things that almost kept it from reaching the public because also they were going to do a version of what becomes of the brokenhearted in this movie instead of I Will Always Love You. But then there was Paul Young's remake of that song that came out roughly the same time. So they had to scrap that idea and then go to this song. But then people were concerned that Whitney Houston shouldn't sing a country song, that it might alienate people. And then they were going to cut the acapella version. And it's like blah, 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 all this stuff that maybe wasn't going to happen. But really, happily, it did happen. And um, interestingly enough, this song is so com- uh, connected to Whitney Houston that after she died, the song sold enough copies and received enough radio play to re-enter the charts in uh, 2012 at number three, making it one of the few songs that has hit the top five in multiple runs. Now, all of that being said, though, I actually did not put I Will Always Love You at number one on my ranking, which might be shocking after all of the encomiums I have just heaped upon it. But, you know, I just had to go with my gut, and I'll get to why I chose something else uh, later. But I did put this song in second place. It is undeniable, and it deserves at least to be in second. So that's five points from me. Interestingly, the patrons put the song in third place, and they uh, that means that they give it four points. And my suspicion, though I do not have any proof, is that there is still the, the fact that this song has been probably overplayed for 20 lifetimes worth of uh, plays. And th- that type of familiarity does mean a song just isn't ever going to be quite as exciting again. Uh, that That's my suspicion. But I think still... We can probably all agree that this is one of the definitive songs of the 90s, uh, possibly of the whole pop era. So five points from me, four four points from the patrons. Next up on the album, because we are going in album order, is the other hit ballad from this song, uh, from this soundtrack, I Have Nothing, which reached number four on the chart. And let's take a moment to hear a clip of I Have Nothing. Stay in my 
Oh, now this is another song where the the stentorian i think is the only word to describe her vocal here stentorian uh meaning really loud and aggressive and i can remember so clearly my friend katie's dad vic although i could never call him vic i always called him mr Masseri, even though he insisted that i call him vic i could never do it um just the way i was raised and also he just was like he was an authoritative gentleman <laughs> anyway he was so into the bridge of this song don't make me close he made a loop on a mixed tape uh that they played that he played in his car where he just listened to that part of the song like six times in a row which i just find hilarious but it also speaks to the way that this album affected people the album itself was as big a hit as the song I Will Always Love You, it was the first album ever in the history of uh, SoundScan, at least, when they were really able to make accurate recordings, to sell a million copies in a week. So once the data got very, very specific, this was the first album that sold a million copies in a single week because everybody loved this album. So I have nothing huge, huge, huge hit and still has a sort of... This is, to me, the it's even more over-the-top, like, swathed in uh, fabrics, uh, wearing a turban with a jewel clasp than I Will Always Love You. Like, there's no attempt, as there is in I Will Always Love You, to start quietly. Homegirl rolls in at an 8, ends at a 16 out of 10. No apologies. Don't look for an apology. Look for a key change. And I think that there's something about the athleticism and the show-offiness of the vocal here that I really like because it's just such a fuck you. It's like, can you do this? Boom. No, you can't. And interestingly enough, uh, I read that when they were auditioning for their initial recording contracts, both Jessica Simpson and improbably Britney Spears had to perform this song to demonstrate that they had vocal range. And if you can imagine Britney Spears trying to sing this song and then actually getting a recording contract... You have a very perverse imagination, but then so do I, because obviously it worked, and I would kind of kill to hear Britney's version of this song, but maybe not all of it. Maybe just a touch, maybe just a whisper, because if I heard the whole thing, it might actually kill me. Now, I do love uh, I Have Nothing, and I put it in third place on this collection, giving it four points, but you know who loves it more than me? The patrons, because they put I Have Nothing in first place with six points which i think is a very fair and understandable ranking so that's uh again four points for me six points from the patrons next we have the other top 10 hit from the soundtrack which is i'm every woman a remake of the shaka khan and rufus hit Uh, of course this was much much bigger hit for whitney and like with I Will Always Love You, this version pretty much obliterates the memory of the original in the public imagination. I mean, I'm Every Woman may as well be a Whitney Houston song, even though she calls out Shaka Khan's name at the very end. Shaka! Shaka! Like, yeah, girl, we hear you saying Shaka Khan's name. We don't remember her now. Shaka Khan's in the video. Don't matter. Don't matter. Oh, sadly, also, Whitney Houston is pregnant in this video with Bobby Christina, who has now also passed away, so it's sort of sad to look back on that. Um, This song, interestingly, was in the top 10 at the same time that I Have Nothing was in the top 10, and I Will Always Love You was still in the top 20. So all three of these songs were massive, inescapable hits simultaneously, which also just underscores what kind of freaking phenomenon this whole thing was. 
for me though, I, I'm every woman. Do I enjoy it? Of course I do. I'm a human being. I love the disco beat. I love that there was a, an up-tempo song from this album that was a hit because it's not all power ballads in our lives. But this one for me is just fine. Like, it's it's good. I, I'm not mad at it. Of course I know every word. I can cast a spell so that you can't tell. I mean, I'm not going to sing the whole thing for you, but I could. But, you know, it's just like you got to rank things, right, in this type of project. And to me, this is just – it's fine. It's not my favorite, and I, I still really like it. But there's just – there's nothing about it that has that extra zhuzh that makes me freak out the way that some of the other songs on this recording, uh, on this soundtrack do. So I have put it in a res- respectable to me fifth place, next to last. I, look, no offense meant. It's just like this is a really solid, fun song. But it doesn't have the feeling of a of an outre classic like some of the others. So that's two points for me. Now, the patrons, however, were much kinder, and they put it in second place, giving it five points. So, you know, I'm glad that uh, I'm Every Woman has its fans out there. You know, much love, much love, much love. Uh, next, we have the fourth single from this album, uh, the song called Run To You. And this is the song that Dean, the listener, recommended that we talk about on the podcast so dean this is the song that brought us all into the fold to begin with thank you for bringing it up uh before we go any further let's listen to a clip from run to you Now, Run To You reached the top 40, but it was not, in terms of the charts, a a very big hit, especially compared to the three other massive successes from this album. But I think that partially is because it was the fourth single, and by the time this song was out, uh, one of the things that sent a song up the singles singles charts was sales. And by the time this song was released, millions upon millions of people already owned this soundtrack, so who needed to buy the single for Run To You. I think if it had been released as the second single, it probably would have gone much higher. But, you know, again, you don't need to buy the cassette single or the CD single of Run To You if you've already got the soundtrack. Anyway, um, this song, however, was, along with uh, I Have Nothing, nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song, one of two songs from The Bodyguard to get that nomination. They both lost to um, A Whole New World from Aladdin. So it was just a big year for songs from movies. I Will Always Love You not eligible because it was not explicitly written for The Bodyguard, although if it had been, you just know that would have won. But anyway, uh, anyway, an Oscar nominee, all the same. And interestingly, this song was originally written uh, to be about a breakup. And when the filmmakers contacted the songwriters and said, uh, we're going to move it to a different part of the movie, and now it needs to be about people falling in love, apparently the songwriters were like, okay, and they rewrote the whole song because that's what you do. You can't be too precious about this when you're like, oh, my song is going to be in a major movie, and they're going to highlight it. Yeah, I'm going to rewrite it. So that's really interesting to know that this is not 
the original version of this song. And speaking of people who have to audition to get their recording deals, this is the bodyguard song that Christina Aguilera used to get her recording deal to demonstrate her vocal range. And I can totally imagine Christina Aguilera singing this song. And I also just want to point out that the guys who wrote this song also wrote a James Ingram song called I Don't Have the Heart, which was a number one song in 1990. I really like that song. I don't have the heart to hurt you it's like that smooth r&b and the smoothness also is what applies to run to you i think it actually in a way is a sonic relief uh coming where it does in fourth position on this soundtrack after the ear blasting dramatics of those two ballads and then the up-tempo hollering of i'm every woman it's kind of nice that this song though definitely still filled with those Whitney runs and things, isn't quite as aggressive. There's a a smoothed-out quality. It feels very much early 90s, too, also. Like, it is the early 90s in here, the... The, the the instrumentation, the like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Like, when you, will, when you are just going to go like, ooh, ooh, over some like keys and, and horns and shit, and you're going to take like 30 seconds to do that, you know it's the early 90s. You know that like Lisa Stansfield is coming up next on the radio because that sort of smooth, stretched out, sleepy, sexy, like light the candles, pour the wine sound. I... It just is 1992. We're sexy in different ways in other periods, but that um, lower the blinds, real slow baby sexiness to me is the early 90s. And it's, of course, inspired by the sexiness of the 70s, I would say, but with just a little bit more, like there's just a little bit more oomph to the production, I guess. Things feel a little bit crisper. And uh, definitely, though, you can imagine this song, I think, especially Run To You having been a hit in the 70s, but it was a hit in the 90s. And I do, you know, I have sort of made this argument. I guess I should finish it. So I think that the reason to me that this song sounds like a 90s smoothed out sexiness inspired by, but different from the 70s, is also about the the quality of the vocal production. Like, in the 70s, you've got someone like... um, like a uh, love in you. Whoa, what's her name? <laughs> Girl, I cannot remember who sang love. Minnie Ripperton. Okay, so you've got Minnie Ripperton singing, and that's a song that I think is heavily, in, heavily influenced the vocal and production of Run to You. But on Love in You, you've got that sort of her voice her voice is just mixed down whereas in a song like this where the voice and Whitney Houston herself they're like the star like they're just she's like pumped up and so i feel like that's what makes it feel like it's the 90s this was a time when divas and their personalities were meant to sell songs in an extreme degree so that's finishing that thought anyway i have a lot of affection for this song um i don't think it's again as memorable as the as my top 3 but i i like it still I feel like that its smoothness does actually, in a way, make it a little bit less memorable. But, oh, oh, you guys, and I do remember, though, that there was a time in my life, uh, um, not necessarily proud of this, when I would read song lyrics to girls as though they were poems I had written for them back when I was performing heterosexuality, and I figured you were supposed to woo young women. And I remember so clearly reading the lyrics to run to you, to someone, as like, I wrote this for you. <laughs> Jennifer T. 
from Udawa High School, Middle School. Sorry, girl. I didn't really write this for you. Point being, uh, I st- but I still think this song, though it inspired me to be a ripoff artist in the 90s, it- it's a little bit forgettable for me. It's-, it's enjoyable. It's smooth. It's pretty. I do like it. I have affection for it. But it's just like, like I'm Every Woman. It's like, it's fine. I did rank it, however, one place higher than I'm Every Woman. Quite frankly, just because I hear it less. And this is a place where when you get down to the fine points of ranking, like the fact that it's less familiar to me in the terms of doesn't play on the drugstore radio all the time actually gave it a bit of a leg up. So I put this song in fourth place and gave it three points, as did the patrons. So that's three points across the board for Run to You. And Dean. I would imagine that in your heart, this song is number one. So we're going to put six points total, but with a little star, knowing that that's like a bonus bit of love from Dean. Next, for those of you who are paying attention, you'll notice I have not selected my number one song yet. It's either this or the next song. So we'll see. But next is the song Queen of the Night. And uh, let's take a moment to just hear what that sounds like. Holy shit, you guys. I love this song so much. Ah! It's like Janet Jackson's Black Cat when Janet got like all hard rock all of a sudden. Whitney Houston is rocking out here. I have always loved this song. I love the sassiness of the lyrics. I love the crazy, uh, the, the dramatic quality of her vocal here is not dramatic in that it's just soaring it's like she she gives you sass she gives you a growl she gives you some scooped notes then there ain't nobody's angel like all of that kind of like stretched out performance quality here i just love it she is so in control and powerful and she rides that rock beat it's also in line with free your mind by in vogue this was a period when a lot of women of r&b were doing uh, rock-influenced songs with crunchy heavy metal guitars in them, and I just think that this one is so great. I have always thought this was the best song on this soundtrack. I, I, I From the time that I first heard it, I could not get enough of this. I think it just has such a great chorus, too, and the way that that drum is underneath the chorus, and the, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. There's just more backbone and spine in this to me than, say, an I'm Every Woman Uh I, I just love it. And this song was never released as a single in the United States because by the time it would have been done, it would have been the fifth single. And it's too much, obviously. We all had the song at this point, but I always love it. <laughs> I will always love it. You see what I did in there? Accidentally. Uh, but I also think it's interesting to note that this is one of the few songs uh, from her early career, especially, on which Whitney Houston receives a co-writing credit. So... Who knows what she actually contributed, but mostly I'm sure this song was written by Babyface and L.A. Reid, who are the other songwriters and the producers. They also, uh, Babyface, of course, did I'm Your Baby Tonight with Whitney Houston, a later exhale, shoop, shoop. But to me, this is far and away the hottest, hottest undersung hit on this recording. I put it in first place and gave it six points. 
The patrons put it in fifth and gave it two points, and I understand it. I mean, this is not the song that it's going to be remembered forever, except it's going to be remembered forever by me. And then that brings us finally to Jesus Loves Me. This is a song that I, I, Winnie Houston always needed to add a gospel element, especially once the films started coming in and then she had The Preacher's Wife, which was like all gospel songs. This song, Jesus Loves Me as a song, I can't rank that song. I sang that song in Bible school, like whatever. It just That song just exists. It's, it's like a sing-along, chanty song for children in Bible school. This this version of the song is to me super cheesy in a, that worst '90s way. Like, no, y'all, I do not need to hear "Jesus Loves Me" performed as though it is the eighth track on an Anita Baker album. It the, the production sounds so dated. It sounds really rushed and cheap. It I I honestly don't understand why this song is here. It's the it's the single most skippable track on this record on this soundtrack, and I'm including the other six songs when I say that. So that should tell you something because we're talking about a soundtrack that includes a cover of an Elvis Costello song by a pop jazz performer. So this song to me is even less essential than that. Uh, I put it in last place with one point, and so did the patrons. So that means. Far and away that that song was our last place entrant, and that cannot be that much of a surprise. In fact, Jesus Loves Me only got one vote from the patrons, and the person who did it even acknowledged in the comments on the poll that she was doing it because she just felt like she needed to be someone who who gave the underdog a little love. Well, underdog is right. Um, So in our final rankings, that puts Jesus Loves Me last in sixth place. In fifth place, uh, with six points, is Run To You. Dean, sorry, man, but, you know, love all around. Uh, fourth place is I'm Every Woman, which is which has seven points. Third place, largely because of me, I know, is Queen of the Night with eight points. And here's a little bit of a surprise. Second place is I Will Always Love You with nine points, even though that is the signature song. First place with 10 points goes to I Have Nothing. So look at that, you guys. We came up with a surprising winner, I would say. I Have Nothing is our collective favorite song from Whitney Houston's cuts on the Bodyguard soundtrack. So we do have something. We have each other. We have this conversation. We have pop music. Thank you so much for listening uh, to this special single. And of course, we will continue with regularly scheduled episodes of the podcast, uh, as we always do. As I am recording this, I know we've got a really fun conversation coming up this week about the song Moon River. But uh, I hope that you enjoyed this. I loved getting to talk to you guys about this song. Thank you, especially to the patrons who voted. And again, if you'd like to become a patron and join us in voting on these ranking episodes, we would love to have you. You can join us at patreon.com slash mastus. But for now, bye. This is Mark and Sarah. Talk about songs. songs. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.